You're listening to The Fully Occupied Show, presented by Occupier. Hey, everybody. Uh, Matt with Occupier here. Thanks for tuning in for another episode of Fully Occupied. We've got a great uh, conversation here today. Uh, we are joined by Michael Yang, who is a managing partner at Omer's Ventures. Uh, Omer's is a global venture capital firm. Full disclosure has invested uh, in our series A Round here at Occupier. Uh, but they have a unique perspective on real estate, uh, given uh, their parent company, uh, Oxford Properties, uh, being part of that umbrella. Uh, and just uh, talking with Michael uh, gives a really clear description of what's happening in terms of the PropTech 2.0 uh, wave that we're in, uh, how the Fed uh, raising interest rate, rates is impacting how venture capitalists are valuing uh, deals uh, in the early stages, uh, and also what it takes basically to you know turn a big ship around in terms of the legacy industry and how software can help do that. So. Uh, Michael's got a great perspective. We hope you enjoy this one, and thanks for tuning in. Michael, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us. Hey, Matt. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Yeah, morning your time. Uh, just afternoon my time, but, you know, prop tech never sleeps, so here we go. Um, <laughs> uh, well, thanks for joining the show. Why don't you give the, the listeners a little uh, background on yourself? Absolutely. Uh, I'm Michael Yang. I'm a managing partner with Omer's Ventures. We are proud investors and occupier, amongst other things. Uh, but we are a global early stage venture capital fund that got started back in 2011. Uh, we have offices in London, Toronto, uh, and San Francisco. I'm dialing in to this podcast with Matt from the West Coast, hence the, uh, the time zone uh, recognition acknowledgement at the beginning. And um, one of the areas that we really enjoy investing in is uh, in all things prop tech, uh, as well as um, B2B software and occupiers, the perfect uh, convergence of, of those two domains, uh, which are our key sectors and areas of focus for us at Omer's Ventures. Cool. And um, Omer's obviously is affiliated with, you know, the Ontario Municipal Retirement, uh, retirement System. Um which also owns Oxford Properties, which is one of the uh, largest global real estate investors um, in, in all in all asset classes. So I would imagine, you know, not specifically with Occupier, but when you're doing diligence on companies like ours and others, you've got some really good insight internally that you could just walk down the hall and say, hey, you know, what are you guys seeing on the ground in terms of real estate technologies? Is that accurate to say? And And kind of what are some of the insights you're typically looking for when you're specifically looking at a prop tech company? Yeah, absolutely, Matt. I think um, you just gave us a little bit of a commercial right there. So thank you for that shameless plug. Um, it, is, it is one of the reasons why um, we have selected uh, prop tech as one of our major areas of, of interest um, to leverage the global insights and footprint of Oxford Properties and all the asset classes and asset types within real estate that they participate in, in all phases of the life cycle from development to asset management uh, and, and so forth. 
uh, and, and construction too. It, it's just uh, a great purview into everything that's going on. So whether it's office, whether it's retail, whether it's hospitality, whether it's industrial, whether it's some of the new types that are um, gaining interest like um, labs and uh, media studios, um, you know, we usually like to stay in touch with what they're saying and understand kind of what the, the principles and the practitioners of, of the business of real estate are really facing. Yeah. What, like, give us your kind of, I don't know, assessment of the prop tech market from a VC perspective, because I think there's like a general acknowledgement that this industry is still in its nascency in terms of innovation. Um, and I'm sure there are other sec, there are sectors within real estate that are further ahead than others. You know, for example, you know, residential might be further ahead than commercial in terms of, you know, managing data, you know, marketing space, things like that. Would you say we're in like the first inning of prop tech being a investable um, category? Are we, you know, in the sixth inning? Where are we um, in terms of its life cycle? Yeah. So let's start kind of define uh, prop tech and kind of the subcomponents of it. Um, at Omer's Ventures, we think of PropTech into three major buckets, residential, commercial, and construction. And not all people kind of define PropTech that way. Um, and we think of it as the intersection of technology meets each of those industries, residential real estate, commercial real estate, and also the, the construction industry. That may be software, that may be tech-enabled services, but it's basically solutions to kind of facilitate um, either... Uh, innovation, facilitate operational efficiency, facilitate kind of um, new ways of basically doing business and the respective uh, domain. Um, what I would say is, um, you know, prop tech is a term that kind of came to being within what, the last five, six kind of years or so. But, um, you know, online real estate from a residential consumer perspective, what some would say has been around for, for decades at this point, right? Whether it's... Um, right home buyers looking for listings online or, or rentals online, like that's been going on for, for a while. And some people actually point to that as the 1.0 and what we're going through right now is as, as the 2.0. But, you know, for, for purposes of this most recent kind of bull run where entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, as well as the underlying industry have all converged to kind of create a new melting pot of, of, of innovation, I would say, this era of prop tech is, as we just said, probably five, six years um, running and has miles to run. You know, when we started really focusing on prop tech at Omer Ventures in 2019, we only got into it with a concentrated focus, but we believe there's at least a 10 year run in front of us where we could try to build a, a franchise where we could spend time um you know, nurturing relationships with with founders and entrepreneurs, and that we had the time to build venture scale businesses before in our business, we, we ultimately need to kind of exit them and, and seek liquidity. So, you know, if we were too late in the cycle, that'd be tough. If we were too early in the cycle, then, you know, it may not match up with venture timelines, but we think uh, the, the time is here and now. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think there's like so much uh, innovation space. And if we zero in on you know, the stakeholders that occupier serves, um, obviously you've done, you know, exhaustive due diligence on, on our space. Um, and you know, we, let's break it down into two, two sections, right? One is let's talk about the tenant rep brokers. Then we'll talk about the tenants themselves. What did you, 
what did you learn when you started diligence on us uh, about the commercial brokerage space and their willingness to adopt technology, the problems that you know they're facing, not only on the enterprise level, but even down to the individual agent? And how do you see their work changing over the next you know 10 years? Sure. So, uh, I mean... You're steeped into this and your your listeners are as well, but the brokerage space has been consolidating for, for quite some time now, right? And we have some fairly sizable businesses that are on a national scale, and then we have some really strong kind of regional or, or local players as well. Um, that all means the the bar to compete, the bar to kind of stay relevant in the eyes of, of owners as well as tenants uh, continues to kind of increase. Um, I think the other thing we've seen in, in kind of that space is a generational shift, right? The, the, uh, the, the foundational kind of leaders of the industry, you know, are of a certain age that they may be looking to retire. They may be looking to exit the business. They'd be looking to kind of um, solve succession planning and bring the next guard kind of uh, to, to the forefront. Um, I think a lot of these businesses have gotten to a point of scale where maybe the model of rolling up or buying your competition or just hiring a lot more brokers, you know, that that playbook and set of tactics may be, may be played out. So where is growth going to come from? Um, I think it's why some of these organizations, especially the large scale of ones, are turning to technology and innovation, right? You see innovation departments crop up and actually innovation teams and head of innovations, which you know, in other industries within kind of the overall economy, you, you saw that phase in the dot-com era, frankly, you know, so we're kind of yeah. 20 years later from that. I think the other thing is you've also seen corporate venture capital arms kind of sprout up and the act of either investing in startups or in investing in prop tech funds who invest in startups to, again, provide access um, and, and, and information exchange. Um, and then, you know, once you get to kind of those those really big national players, there's a little bit of one upsmanship, right? Like if if you mad at you know company X is doing something, then I Michael at brokerage B should be doing something, you know. So we're keeping up with the with the Joneses on a proverbial basis. So I I think there's actually more dynamic kind of uh, things going on in the brokerage space than ever before because they just know what got me here is not going to get me to the next ten years, the next twenty years, uh, et cetera. On the tenant side, you have a fundamentally different set of issues, which is equally fascinating. And you throw in a little bit of a pandemic and you really have blown up everything that has ever happened on on the tenant side, right? So a lot of this is tenants coming to grips and trying to react to who their core constituents are, right? Their workers, their employees, um, and, and all that ecosystem that surrounds that. So Let's start with one big asset type, office. I mean, every day, I feel like you and I open up the Wall Street Journal, Real Deal, the New York Times, whatever periodical. Are we returning to office? Are we working from home? Are we hybrid? Are we this? Like, I'm just nauseous just trying to figure out which way is it going. And, you know, it's like become so commonplace that you can talk about the weather with somebody and you can talk about whether or not they're working from home, the office and, and so on oh, and yeah. so forth. Right. And, and, and now the definitioning of, of working uh, or return to office has, has many different things too, right. Is it a corporate facility that is uh, owned and, and operated? Is it a flex space that is not, is it a, temporal hub or node that people kind of convene to? Is it truly just kind of your home? 
um, or a coffee shop in in your in your neighborhood. Like it, it's a brand new world, and the dust is not settling anytime soon. As much as kind of the stalwarts um, like on the East Coast and, and New York City, the financial services industry is trying to comp- compel people to come back. You know, they may be doing a little bit better than the tech employers out here where I am in the Bay Area that have been trying to do this for repeatedly, you know, quarter after quarter, and they continue to roll it back, roll it back, because there's simply kind of mutiny on on, on, on the ship, basically. So I, I think just tapping into and, and addressing societal changes and also generational kind of attitudes, you know, the workforce, whether you're a Gen X, you're a millennial or a Gen Z, it's it's really different. And you know, even in our organization at Numbers Ventures with, you know, 30, 40 people on a global basis, we constantly survey our own team and three geographies, Europe, uh, U.S. and Canada. And you see some similarities and you also see some differences as well. You know, and you can see it by age. You can see it by kind of family status. You can see it by role. Um, and, hey, if I'm an attendant, I'm probably more confused than ever in terms of what I'm going to do. And that speaks to, again, I need tools, I need software, I need technology, in addition to brokers and advisors and other kind of people who've been there, done that, kind of counseling me on on how to kind of future-proof uh, my workforce. Yeah, I mean, I can I can say I, did, I just got back from a corporate real estate event in, in Toronto where some of the largest Canadian companies, the heads of real estate were in the room and no one has this figured out yet. And the vast majority of them are still working off of these legacy tools that are not equipped to provide them with the data that they need to make these decisions, especially in, in real time. Um, and you know, people were talking about, well, how often should we be survey, surveying our people uh, based on you know badge swipe data and what they want in the space and what rooms they need to enable their work. And the consensus was it needs to be agile. It needs to be like almost daily. You need to be tracking this stuff because there's such high stakes. If you, if you look at some of the major companies here in Boston, like, you know, their downtown headquarters might be a million square feet, but 10% of people are coming in every day. Right. So it's like you have this major cost center at these businesses where still nobody knows what to do with it. Um, so I would imagine, and this is what the, the thesis of our business is based on, is give the people the information that they need at the most basic level so all the stakeholders can touch it and feel it and use that data to make their decisions. Um, so if you even peel real estate out of it, that's a pretty basic principle from a software framework. Yeah. Um, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, I think society a long time ago, the workforce shifted from being out and making widgets in a manufacturing environment to an information services predicated economy. And the talent is is your asset, right? Like many, many companies for decades now have been saying, you know, those people who kind of walk in and out of the door, that that's on the sum total of all that, basically. So um, it's a brand new world in terms of what the employer uh, and and kind of the companies basically need to do to kind of service their uh, their populations appropriately. Yeah. So speaking of brand new world, obviously we had a, a pretty rough tech market crash, you know, over the last six months or so. Um, we're a tech company, so what that means for us is still TBD. Um, although these forces that we're talking about today are definitely accelerants for our business. What are you seeing generally across the investing space? Is it still? I, 
is it still nobody knows where valuations are. Um, people taking shots in the dark. Good companies are getting funded. Bad companies are are, are struggling to raise money. Like how how is it how is it playing out in the streets? Yeah, I think it's 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 all of that. So let's start with the macro, Matt. Um, the the main driver of a lot of consternation is the rising interest rate environment, and because capital markets in general don't know where that's going to lead to, you know, does it start to plateau in the near future? Does it continue to kind of ascend? You know, given the the hawkishness of of the Fed right now. Um, that leads to volatility, that leads to uncertainty on how to price assets fundamentally, okay? Um, if yeah. interest rates continue to go up, you know, your, your asset values may continue to go down, why would you want to catch a falling knife in this particular environment? If you know you're near the bottom, then I think the, the, the return of the investor will, will start to emerge. But if, if you don't know if that's six months, 12 months, 18 months, 24 months, then you're going to be more in a, in a lean back posture. So that's what I would say is the overall kind of backdrop for, for everything that's kind of going on. Um, yep. That is counterbalanced by, you know, a lot of the commentary that you're probably reading as well, which is there is boatloads of capital sitting on the sidelines that have been raised over the last few years across private kind of markets, public markets. And asset managers, investors, whether in venture like ourselves here at Omer's Ventures or, or others, you're paid to kind of invest. You're paid to deploy capital. Now, you're not paid yeah. to do it poorly or generate <laughs> crappy returns. But at some point, you know, how long can you kind of sit on the sidelines? And I think you've seen in the course of 2022, quarter over quarter decrease in capital deployment across most of the, um, the, uh, the asset ladders. So what does that mean? I think for the star average startup and prop tech, you know, the mantra has been out there since the end of Q1, beginning of Q2, which is conserve cash, right? Cash is king, manage your burn, extend your runway, you know, in whatever kind of um, fashion you can. And and at the end of the day, as as a founder of a startup or, or, or the CEO of any company, there's only so many levers you can do, right? You can reduce costs, which unfortunately kind of in the startup world tends to be layoffs because it, again, is people who are primary cost drivers. Uh, You can increase revenues, which is tough. And the overall economic cycle, if if your buyers are also kind of uh, experiencing the same kind of uh, pain and frustration. And then the the third is you can raise more capital, whether it's equity or debt. Now, the equity markets have, have largely frozen, as I started off by saying, the debt markets have been more available, but everyone kind of started rushing there at the beginning of the year. So they're now kind of fully jammed. Like I, I, I visualize them as a boa constrictor that's eaten some animal and now they're just trying to like figure out how, how do they kind of get it through at, that, at this point, right? So um, it, it's, it's, it's a tough situation. And I think th- what I'm very optimistic about is that 99% of the founders that we meet in the prop tech space have, have gotten that message. They've, they've gotten religion. They're not operating like this is Q4 of 21 when it was the go-go days. They're doing everything possible to kind of weather the storm. And hopefully most have good investors, good advisors, good good board members that have been telling them like, hey, you know, all this is happening and, and, and buckle, buckle in. I think a lot of people optimistically thought by the end of this calendar year, we would be in a better state. I mean, unfortunately, in the last couple of weeks, I think we had a little bit of a false dawn in, in Q3. We're now back kind of 
you know, on the on on the downward trajectory, though maybe we're starting to hit rock bottom. But you can't, as a uh, a founder or even as a VC, try to guess the markets, time the markets, or or do any of that kind of stuff. You know. Yeah, and you have to stick to your fundamentals and do everything that you just said and push whatever ever levers are available to you. But you can't control if the Fed's going to continue to raise interest rates, and until until that stops, it sounds like there's still going to be that uncertainty out there. Yeah, and hopefully we're you know, hopefully we're, we're less than 12 months away from what that, you know, when that happens. <laughs> Let's yeah. Hope. Yeah. The, the, the other thing is, is valuations, which I, I didn't overly comment on. Um, you know, you've seen the activity in the, in the public sectors that drives kind of private valuations at some point in time, usually on a, on a lag basis. So we're still kind of working our way through, through, through that, you know, the, the, the good part of the private markets is, Hey, for any company, all it takes is one uh, private investor, one venture investor to kind of put a mark on it. And that, that, that's, that's your new kind of valuation, right? So that's a new market. Yeah. yeah. So somebody could buck the trend and, and kind of uh, change, change trajectory for an individual given company. But, you know, in the aggregate, there, there's still a lot of downward pressure, right? And, and yeah. 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 And the companies that, companies that are going to compel an investor to buck the trend are the ones that have the fundamental metrics that indicate growth, like in whatever downturn, whatever economic environment that you're operating in, an investable business is an investable business. It's just really how much is it worth? Correct. Absolutely. Cool. Awesome. Well, this has been fun, Michael. Let's uh, let's jump into our fast five questions. These this is our segment where I give you a minute to answer a question, um, and uh, they're very random. So I'm going to start <laughs> with question number one. If you could eat one meal for the rest of your life, what would it be? Jeez, one meal. Um, I am a big dim sum fan. You know, I love kind of sitting around with a, a large party of people and a potpourri of, of little options, and I could probably do that all day long. So, yeah, yeah, you could sit there for hours on end and, yeah. and you, you wait till you're not full again. And then you see what cart's coming by and you just start it, you start it all over. So I, I think you and I got to get that going ourselves, right? You'll probably do it in, in Chinatown in San Francisco. That's probably a better spot for it from where, than, than where I'm at right now. That or New York. Yep. Yeah. Uh, awesome. Okay. Question two. Do you have any hidden talents? Hidden talents. Um yeah, fun fun fact. Like uh, at one point in my life, I thought I was going to go to music school for playing the French horn. So, wow, there you go. How about that? Got got that reaction from you, so that clearly is a hidden talent. Yeah, I I, uh, I was a I think I was second chair all county trumpet in, in high school myself. So I probably we could have started a band. You got it, occupier um, band. Are you still active on the on the on the French horn? I, I still am. At least once a year, I I, I guess play for some sci- high school kind of orchestras in the area just to kind of see if I can still cut it. Cool, that's awesome. Yeah. Question three: um, If you could win one Olympic gold medal, in which event would it be? Uh, men's soccer. So I'm a I'm a big soccer fan. Uh, still try to play pickup on the weekends and all that kind of stuff until my knees give out. I'll be there. I'm not going to cut her for the world cup that just seems too hot and all that kind of stuff. But um, yeah, you can usually find me early mornings, West coast time watching uh, English premier league and then heading out midday to kind of play some soccer myself. Nice. What do you, what, what's your prognosis for the UN's uh, U S men's national team in the, in the cup? Yeah. 
you know, hopefully get out of uh, group stages. That's about it. Yeah. An another year of mediocrity. <laughs> <laughs> Question four. Um, what is the best advice you've ever received? Um, best advice that still holds true for me that I got from my father and I've passed on to my kids as well is never rely on natural ability, right? Whether that's your smarts, whether that's your your athletic prowess and, and God-given kind of uh, traits there. Um, life is all about attitude and hard work. And I, I actually believe that. You, you see it in the workplace. You see it in, in school. Um, you know, I, I as a, you know, as a manager of someone who hires and recruits a lot of people, I will always take somebody with, with that, the right attitude, the right frame of mind and kind of that can do kind of perspective. Yeah, that's great advice. And I'm going to pass that to my seven-year-old twins because they're in second grade now and there's their first year of homework. So <laughs> compelling them to get the homework done is 100% attitude, Yep, 0% uh, aptitude. Um, although sometimes I'm a little stumped by some of their math questions, which is, is a little sad, but you know, <laughs> I, I, haven't been, I haven't been studying that much lately. Uh, well, Michael, it's been great having you on the show. Um, awesome conversation. If, if we could come up, if you could come up with a couple of guests that you think we we could have on here. Uh, give me, give me a name or two. Yeah. Um, a good friend of the fund here is Jim Barrett over at Turner construction. Jim is the chief information, uh, or sorry, chief innovation officer for Turner construction. One of the largest, if, if not the largest global general contractor. So to the extent your listeners are, are interested in deep diving a little bit in the construction world, I, I would recommend him uh, wholeheartedly as a speaker. And then back to the topic on tenants. Um, there's a gentleman over at Comcast Corporation, John Kipp. He was point during the, the pandemic for all of Comcast's efforts um, nationally and globally on the return to work the safety and all that kind of stuff from, from the workforce perspective. And, you know, he might be another interesting person for, for you all to have on at some point, if you, if you really want to kind of tap into like the real jumbo enterprise kind of tenant and how they think about all this is going on. Yeah. We can work through his PTSD uh, right <laughs> live on the show. <laughs> right, right, right. You're therapy. You're the therapist now, Matt. Yeah. I'll just uh, use my soothing voice. Well, Michael, thanks a lot. This has been great. We appreciate your time and uh, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks, Matt. Thanks for having me.